You are listening to National Security Law Today. Thanks for tuning in. Before we start this episode, just a note to say that next week on June 4th, NSLT will not be releasing a new episode. Instead, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will be hosting a virtual launch event for women in national security law. Please register to join us at this panel and Q&A session featuring Cindy Ryan, the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, the founder of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, Michelle Pierce, the principal deputy general counsel of the U.S. Army, Mika Oyang, the vice president for national security at Third Way, and Don Browning, the deputy general counsel of the National Security and Cyber Law Branch of the FBI. The registration for this is on our website at AmericanBard.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this show. We hope to see you there. You can also get a podcast fix with one of the hosts of our show, Yvette Busico, who recently appeared on Technology by Design with Matt Perot. So if you'd like to listen to that, we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, and now let's get on with our episode. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine and all the time. As always, the lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And remember, because we are recording remotely, we ask that you please take any of our background noises in stride. All right. And today our podcast is the second in our series that deals with the important role of oversight and inspectors general in the area of national security law. And we overlap today with our new occasional series on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. In our last two podcasts, we discussed the roles of the role of inspectors general in the intelligence community and the recent firings of IGs by President Trump and the authority of the president to remove or fire IGs. Last week, we had an opportunity to speak to Michael Woods, the author of a memo on FISA affidavit policies in the FBI. That memo, written just months before the 9-11 attacks almost 20 years ago, required the FBI to account for every assertion in a FISA affidavit or declaration. If you didn't hear that podcast, we'll hyperlink it in the notes for you, since today's cast is going to build on that history. The FBI thereafter had to construct and keep a file that became named for Michael Woods. The Woods file was required to be maintained in every FISA case. In the Woods file, the FBI kept records that support every assertion in its FISA declaration. So how does this bring us back to the role of inspectors general in the intelligence community, or IC? Well, inspectors general publish reports, and these reports get read by people who have an interest in the subject of the report, like members of Congress, people in the executive branch, people working in the media, and more. And in 2019, the Justice Department Inspector General, Mike Horowitz, reviewed the Carter Page FISA and many others, 29 in total. All of the FISA targets were U.S. persons that were reviewed. To talk about the IG, the courts, and FISA today, we're joined by Bob Litt, now an attorney at Morrison and Forrester, but previously the general counsel of ODNI and earlier in the criminal division and deputy attorney general's office at the Department of Justice, where he worked on FISA-related matters. 
Bob also served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. And for our listeners, he was the prosecutor on the Black Liberation Army Brinks robbery case that was featured in the book Tonight We Bomb the U.S. Capitol and in our podcast on that subject. Bob attended Harvard College and also Yale Law School and currently teaches at Yale Law School. We're also proud to mention that Bob is a member of the advisory committee to the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. Um, This is a particularly timely topic because, as you may know, uh, there are currently pending in Congress proposals to reauthorize some provisions of FIRED, and there's a lot of uh, proposals to uh, amend FISA in ways to deal with the kinds of problems we're going to be talking about today. Well, um, uh, then I'm glad you're here because, as we mentioned at the start of last week's podcast, while COVID has been holding our attention, Um, The chief judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, that's for our listeners, that's the court that hears requests from the Department of Justice for wiretaps or searches under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That court issued two orders, and and in particular, those orders came from Judge Boasberg, who is the chief uh, judge on the FISC. Um, Bob, what can you tell us about those orders? So the the history here is kind of complicated. let me, uh, let me run through it for you, if I could. Um, this began um, with the Inspector General's report in December of last year uh, about Crossfire Hurricane, which is what the FBI called the counterintelligence investigation into Russian influence on our elections. Um, to briefly summarize that report, the Inspector General found that the Russia investigation was appropriately started based on adequate information and that there was no indication that it was politically motivated. It's important to emphasize that point because it tends to get lost. The IG also focused on uh, an application to conduct FISA surveillance of Carter Page, who had previously but was no longer uh, been associated with the Trump campaign, and on three renewals of that surveillance. And the inspector general found that there were numerous errors and omissions in those applications that were material. In particular, the applications overstated the reliability of information provided to the FBI by Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence agent who had investigated possible ties between Trump and Russia, first of all, at the request of one of Trump's Republican opponents, and later he was hired by the Clinton campaign. The applications also let out, left out exculpatory statements that Page had made and the fact that Page had had a relationship with the CIA for a number of years, including while he had some of the contacts with Russian officials that were referred to in Steele's report. Uh, and the IG uh, noted in particular that the FBI had withheld information from the Department of Justice, sometimes in response to direct requests from the department. So this report made a number of recommendations for changes And several days after it was issued, Judge Collier, who was then the presiding judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, ordered the government to respond on what steps it was taking to fix those problems. The Department of Justice made that report on January 10th. It listed numerous steps the FBI was taking to improve training, to establish procedures to try to ensure that all relevant information was included in a FISA application and was accurate and to increase coordination with the Department of Justice. That same day, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court appointed David Criss, 
who is a former assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division, as an amicus curiae to review the government's response and make further recommendations. A week later, Chris responded essentially saying that DOJ's response was a good first step, but more was required. And the government then made an additional submission proposing additional steps. So that's the background to the first order, which Judge Boasberg issued on March 4th. And Judge Boasberg had succeeded Judge Collier as chief judge. Judge Boasberg worked off the premise that only when the government fully and accurately provides all information in its possession that is material as to whether probable cause exists, and the court's review effectively serves as a check on the executive branch to conduct surveillance. Improvements to procedures for preparing applications, improvements to training, and improvements to oversight. And he adopted many of David Chris's recommendations for strengthening the government's response. The overall thrust of this opinion is to try to establish processes that will ensure that every H5 application is accurate and that all information material to a determination of probable cause, including information that is exculpated. So that's the first order. That was based on the Carter Page report that the IG did. A few weeks later, on March 30th, the IG issued another report. Um, this was of uh, the findings the IG made from a review of 29 FISA applications for compliance with the Woods procedures. Uh, and as Alicia uh, uh, said earlier, under the Woods procedures, the FBI is supposed to create and maintain a file to contain factual backup supporting each factual assertion made in an application. And it's important to note that this doesn't mean that every time an informant thinks they have to verify that the informant is telling the truth, they just have to uh, verify that the informant actually said that, bearing on the informant's credibility. What the IG found in its review of those 29 applications was grim. Uh, in four cases, they couldn't find a Woods file at all. It contained a large number of deficiencies. Uh, that is to say, statements that were in the FISA applications that were not supported by the Woods file. Uh, there was an average of 20 such deficiencies in each file, ranging up to, I think, the high number was 62. Uh, in addition, the, Depart the IG found that although the Department of Justice makes it a practice to review certain applications after they've been submitted to ensure they're accurate, those Department of Justice routinely identified the same kinds of deficiencies, but did not have a process for using that to improve the process. So again, it's important to note the limits of what the IG found. They made clear that they did not indicate whether the statements in question were accurate or not, whether those statements were material to the determination of probable cause. Judge Boasberg on April 3rd issued his second order, uh, ordering the government to report by June 15th on those two questions that the IG didn't address. Statements were accurate and material, uh, and also ordered the government to report every two months on the progress in making sure that Woods files are created and maintained as required by FBI policy. That's the background of Judge Boasberg's two orders. As you mentioned, Judge Boasberg's orders direct the Department of Justice to implement certain policies to ensure the accuracy of FISA declarations. Could you just go over some of the things that you referenced that the judge had ordered DOJ to do? Uh, I, I didn't catch all that. Oh, some of the things that uh, the judge ordered the DOJ to do? 
Yes. Uh, I know you gave us a quick run through, but if we could just dig a little bit deeper into what the judge asked of DOJ. So it's actually interesting because if you read Judge Boasberg's orders, he really doesn't direct the Department of Justice to do much of anything other than to provide reports on the policies that the Department of Justice said it and the FBI were going to be implementing. He didn't say to the FBI, for example, one of the um, one of the uh, issues that David Chris raised was whether FISA applications should be signed by the case agent out in the field rather than by a headquarters agent. Uh, and David Chris recommended that. Judge Bozberg didn't order the, the Department of Justice to do that. He ordered them to report on whether that would be a good idea. And similarly, he ordered a lot of reports on their progress in making changes to various forms, on integrating the FBI and the Department of Justice better. But by and large, he did not make these, make these orders himself. He just said, I want you to tell me what how you are coming on your own proposals for responding to the uh, Inspector General's report. Um, and there were a lot of those. The FBI uh, made some 40, announced that they were gonna make some 40 changes uh, and, and then added more after David Chris's recommendations. Um, and, and so Judge Boasberg basically said, I want you to come, come back and tell me what your progress is in, in making these. He wants to keep their feet to the fire to ensure that they actually make the changes they promised to make, and then to require them to assess the efficacy of those changes. I think there were two areas in which Judge Boasberg has actually ordered the department and the FBI to do something. The first was an order that no FBI or DOJ personnel who were under disciplinary or criminal investigation can participate in the FISA process. And the second is he ordered that FISA applications submitted to the court contain a certification by the FBI that they've provided all material information to the Department of Justice and that the Department of Justice certified that the application fairly re reflects all information that might call into question the accuracy of the information or otherwise raise doubt about the requested findings. Thanks, Bob. Um, let's like, go a little bit deeper on this. Um, the FISC, or the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, while part of the judicial branch, was a creation of Congress, right? Yes. So um, we'd love to get a discussion about the separation of powers issues that arise around the creation of this court and, you know, help the audience understand the history behind how this court was created to, to set the stage for us. Sure. Um... So the um, the Supreme Court had in the early 70s suggested that uh, standard warrant requirements might not be required for foreign intelligence surveillance conducted under the authority of the president. But after congressional committees revealed a variety of abuses, uh, Congress in 1978 passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, which um, essentially uh, set up this court 
set up a modified probable cause standard. Um, the, the, the executive branch has always complied with this, even though uh, there has been some rumblings, particularly in the Bush administration, that uh, FISA might be unconstitutional to the extent it constrained the president's authority to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance. But no administration has ever been willing to push that uh, to the limit. They've always uh, accepted FISA and complied with it. Um, now, that there's still the, the second level of separation of powers here, which is the extent to which the court can dictate procedures to the Department of Justice. Um, and that's a separate issue from which, from the extent to which Congress can impose these procedures on the executive branch uh, in the conduct of national security surveillance. So I guess the question is, uh, Bob, so he's, he's asking the executive branch to report their progress on um, compliance, if you will, with the recommendations that were contained in various IG's reports. I think that's one way to look at it. But I think I'm asking um, a larger question here, which I think if you're not a litigator, sometimes disappears in the mist, which is that courts have pretty expansive administrative authority over matters before them. Um, what would be the bounds of the court's administrative authority in this context, do you think? Well, um, I think that Judge Boseberg was probably pretty sensitive to that issue, which is why, by and large, she simply went along with what the department already uh, agreed to do and nudging it a little bit. Clearly, I think the court has authority over who can practice before it. And so I think it's, it's, it's unquestionably within the court's authority for them to say, we don't want to have anybody who's under investigation appearing before us. The other thing is, whatever the limits of the court's authority to impose procedures on the Department of Justice may be, the court can only grant an application. In order to grant an application, the court has to be satisfied that the facts set forth in the application establish probable cause to believe that uh, the target of the, of the application is an agent of a foreign power. Um, and it would seem to me to be within the authority of the courts to say, we're not going to dictate procedures to you, but we will tell you that your existing procedures are not sufficient to give us confidence that in fact, there is probable cause to believe the that the target is an agent of a foreign power. And I think that that kind of a finding would clearly be within the, uh, the scope of a court's authority. So, Bob, can we assume that much of what Judge Boasberg ordered in, was in the nature of requiring the FBI and DOJ to adhere to the Woods policy and maintain records in the Woods file for both accuracy reviews and audits or inspections? That was certainly the focus of his second order. But again, um, all he ordered at this point, he, the, the inspector general made findings about the, uh, the lack of uh, compliance with the Wood procedures. The Department of Justice said, we're going to fix it. What Judge Boasberg 
said was, uh, you need to fix this. Uh, come back and report to me every two months on how you're coming on fixing this. So um, again, he piggybacked on what the Department of Justice had already agreed to do in response to the Inspector General's findings. Judge Bogsberg also wants to know, because the IG did not go into this, were these, in fact, false statements that were material to the determination of probable cause? Because if that's the case, then we're going to be elevated to a whole new level of problem. If it's just a question of inadequate record keeping by the FBI that, that changes in policies and procedures could fix, um, that's one thing. But if, in fact, there have been applications submitted and surveillance orders granted based on false information, that would be a major problem for the FBI. And what in these orders exceeded that existing FBI policy on FISAs? Uh, and based on your experiences, prosecutor, assistant attorney general, are some of those things common sense or possibly a bridge too far? A lot of it is uh, establishing more procedures, more forms, more bureaucratic checks to ensure that the FBI does what it always has supposed to do. Um, it, it's always been the case under the FISA court rules and under Supreme Court precedent that you're supposed to provide the court um, uh, accurate information and you're supposed to provide the court information that materially undercuts probable cause. Uh, the problem was that that didn't, wasn't happening, uh, or at least it didn't happen in the Carter Page case. And there, the, the failure to comply with the Woods procedures meant that it was hard to tell whether that was happening across the board. And so it's going to be a nuisance for the FBI. You, you know, anytime you start uh, imposing these uh, additional checklists, more complicated forms, requirements of, of additional supervisory approval and so on. It's going, to, it's going to create a burden on them. It's going to slow the process down. But they brought it on themselves by not having the kind of, of compliance that they needed to have. Um, and I think that where the problem may come is in a thing that is material to a determination of probable cause. You know, if you have an informant come in and provide you information, how much of the dirt about the informant do you have to include in the Do you have to uh, say every occasion on which the informant has told you something that didn't prove to be, even if the informant believed it to be true? Um, I think that's where the problematic areas are going to come in the implement of these, these procedures. That's an interesting um, sort of observation. And I mean, I guess if an informant was maybe dishonest about the fact that he didn't want to take the agent's call um, and he doesn't want to piss the agent off, you know, maybe he was busy and he did, wasn't honest about that. Um, that would be a very different thing from if he said something that was dishonest about the pending matter or any other matter um, that he was working on for the FBI, I suppose. But nevertheless, um, I know, Nicole, uh, you had a question about procedures and what happens after 
uh, the application or in this case, an order? Well, just the question was that procedurally, can this order be appealed? Uh, and how, how would you go about appealing it if that's the case? So there were really uh, there are two theoretical avenues. Um, to the extent that Judge Boseberg has ordered the FBI to take certain steps, that could be appealed. But given that, as I said a couple of times, all he's ordered is give me reports, I think that the likelihood that the uh, FISA Court of Review would hold that that's beyond his authority is is pretty small. Um, the other context in which it could come up in appeal is if the court rejects an application for failure to comply with detailed procedures, Department of Justice could have that reject intelligence court of review, surveillance court of review. But I think an appeal is very unlikely in this case, uh, certainly not for the foreseeable future. Um, you have to recall that we're in an administration where the president and the attorney general have both repeatedly said that they think that the FBI's policies are inadequate. No likelihood that they're going to want to be appealing this. Now, maybe a few years down the road, after having had some experience with these procedures, if the court continues to adhere to them and the FBI and a new Department of Justice feel that they're unnecessary or excessively burdensome, they could say, we're not going to do this anymore. The Department of Justice could appeal with them. But I suspect that given the record the inspector general has made here and the department's to accept the inspector general's recommendations, that it's highly unlikely to be appealed. I do have a two-part question, um, Bob. We've heard a lot of talk of FISA reform in the past decade, um, and the IG reports uh, and the orders are not suggesting statutory changes, or are they? And then separately, um, you've had a long time to think about this and sort of inhabit the FISA world. Do you see any way that legislation could reach the goal of fact, factual accuracy and exactitude that's always being sought by the FISC or, you know, frankly, any court, and, and certainly by those uh, who are leading the FISA preparation, or is that something that really isn't character dependent? So the, these reports didn't specifically recommend legislation. The FISA legislation that is pending in Congress is in one of the provisions is uh, an increase in penalties for obtaining a FISA inappropriately, um, which I think is, is sort of feel-good legislation. But I doubt that any FBI agent is going to say, well, before, I could only get five years for lying to the FISA court, and I was fine with five years, but now that it's eight years, I'm not going to lie to the FISA court. Um, there's also uh, a provision for uh, greatly increased use of the amicus curiae provision uh, in, the, in the FISA court, which should help uh, to ensure accuracy. But by and large, um, it, 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 there's really not much point in uh, a statute that says thou shalt do the right thing. Um, FBI agents should know that they're supposed to provide this information. And um, uh, I think that it's um, 
I, I just don't think that, that legislation would be particularly helpful in this regard. Or at a minimum, we should give the FBI and the Department of Justice a chance to see if they can clean their own house out before we try to go to Congress uh, and establish a, a statutory framework. Bob, I, I wonder, you know, how would we, as the public, be able to get feedback on that, right? How would we be able to gain confidence that the FBI had indeed, had indeed uh, cleaned its house out? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, one is, uh, I suspect that there will be continued requirements of reporting to the FISA court on the implementation of these procedures and their efficacy. And Judge Boasberg made very clear that he wants to know not only that the procedures are put in place, but he wants to know, are these procedures having the desired effect? So that's one avenue uh, where we're going to know about it. A second, is, uh, as I said, is there's going to be a greater uh, participation of amicus curiae which will give us a, a, a more adversarial, adversarial approach on some of these. Personally, I think that uh, a, an, uh, an important step that could be taken to uh, improve compliance in this regard is to loosen the rules on disclosure of FISA applications to criminal defendants. Right now, uh, criminal defendants never get to see the actual FISA application. If there's, if there's a criminal case, uh, the, the uh, defendant can move to suppress the FISA evidence, but it's all reviewed by the court in camera. Seems to me it would have a very salutary uh, deterrent effect if uh, instead a, defense, uh, a defendant who had counsel who had a security clearance that council was allowed to see the FISA applications and litigate uh, as one normally does a surveillance uh, motion to suppress. I mean, after all, we don't have procedures, anything like this elaborate for the criminal Title III surveillance orders. And the reason for that is there's a check at the back end in uh, adversarial litigation when the surveillance order, when the fruits of the surveillance order were used in a criminal case. We don't have that in the FISA context. And as a result of that, we have to do all these elaborate checklists and procedures and audits and so on. Um, if you simply said, well, we're going to let cleared counsel see the application and litigate, um, that might, to use uh, David Chris's phrase, uh, quoting Samuel Johnson, I think, that might concentrate the FBI agents' minds a little bit when they're preparing the applications. The prospect that defense counsel might be able to tear it apart in the future. Got it. Bob, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We're always happy to have you here. Um, and it's, always, we hope it's always good to be here. <laughs> um, we hope that you'll join us again in the future as we watch events unfold with the FISC. Thank you, Bob, and thank you to our listeners. If you are new to this area of law, we'll hyperlink the FISA statute, which you can find at 50 USC 1801 and forward. We will also add links to the reports of Inspector General Michael Horowitz that we referenced, as well as both of Judge Boasberg's opinions. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in to NSLT. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so you grow your knowledge of the law, find out legal opportunities, and hear about all the events that affect national security law.
Remember to hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice and be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NAPSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed get, and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your laptop screen. And don't forget the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. Thank you for listening. And remember, next week, June 4th, we will not be recording a new episode, but you can register for the Women in National Security Law virtual panel and launch event. Check out our show notes for that registration link, and we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.